behavioral economics is one such brand of this subject that bridges the gap between the otherwise stereotyped robot of a subject and public policy in the real world vocal for local or atmanirbhar bharat the idea behind such slogans is to capture people's attention and subconsciously leave an impression on their memory after all it is indeed important for policy makers to be able to efficiently convey their intentions and policy actions to the masses who got them in power now from a macro policy perspective also there is a need of focusing on happiness along with pre-existing metrics such as gdp in 2010 stiglitz pointed out that what we measure affects what we do if we have the wrong metrics we will strive for the wrong things at the end of the day as situations and contexts change so do our approaches to day to day activity Hello and welcome back everyone to another grand episode of The Bigger Picture a podcast series wherein we bring to you everything from current business economic trends interesting macro and microeconomic theories to guidance in the field of economics from renowned personalities I Himanshu Mittal along with Mayul Manav are going to host today's episode with none other than professor shagata mukherjee an associate professor at meghna desai academy of economics mumbai now i request mayul to quickly introduce our speaker professor mukherjee to the listeners sure a phd from georgia state university dr shagata's work has a strong focus on the role of gender social contexts and norms on policies his research examines how to reduce the risk of default among microfinance borrowers and sheds new light on the conventional wisdom that women are better borrowers than men in microfinance professor mukherjee has presented his research in universities across india us and europe he teaches courses in behavioral and experimental economics development economics and public policy at meghna desai academy sir it is indeed a great honor to have you on board with us and we hope to host a great episode with you for our dear audience Hi thanks thanks for having me um it's uh, it's wonderful to be here and 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 doing this with you guys and we are very excited for today's episode sir uh, economics as a subject has often been and continues to be perceived as too theoretical with all the graphs curves equation and the stereotypes make it inaccessible for a lot of people to have a, in fact an economic temperament especially when it comes to public policy However given how humans are just ultimately psychological being behavioral economics is one such brand of this subject that bridges the gap between the otherwise stereotyped robot of a subject and public policy in the real world with that captain perspective today's episode shall be on the very same topic behavioral economics and public policy So without any further ado let's get right on to our first question one of the most common practices that this government in india is following is the use of slogans such as vocal for local atmanirbhar bharat jan dhan yojana as much as it's about naming policies such that they are easily understood by the masses so do you think there is some behavioral economic theory that explains this Yeah according to mainstream neoclassical economics uh, economic agents are supposed to be perfectly rational while making any decision and they do not account for emotions but of course people don't necessarily behave that way outside of economic textbooks right so citizens are not only economic agents but they are also emotional agents 
Emotions affect people and in turn their behavior and decisions. Thus a behavioral economic tool like emotional priming could explain such slogans like vocal for local or Atmanirbhar Bharat. The idea behind such slogans is to capture people's attention and subconsciously leave an impression on their memory and thus make an idea salient. Most of us remember slogans, taglines and catchphrases of advertisement campaigns or political campaigns that have been discontinued ages back. That's how impactful slogans are. And we have seen that the current government uses a lot of slogans and they likely have some impact on citizens' behavior. Results from some studies show that slogans and naming of schemes do enhance the effectiveness of policies. In fact, last year's economic survey had a chapter on behavioral economics, which stated that naming of several policies in India was done using a behavioral lens. Now, a potential explanation for naming policies such as Janthan is to reduce the actual or perceived psychological distance between the policies and public action or acceptance. Thus, one possible reason for naming the policies in such a manner could be to curb a psychological distance. The ease in understanding could potentially contribute to increased and wider adoption. One can also think of these slogans as narratives created for pursuing citizens. There is a model in psychology called narrative immersion model, which talks about how narratives work. It starts with communication to individuals, then engagement that leads to recall and persuasion, and eventually change in behavior. Vocal for Local and Atmanirbhar Bharat are slogans that are trying to capitalize on people's emotion, particularly appealing to their sense of nationalism to influence their consumption patterns. Amidst the border dispute with China, the pandemic, and shrinking GDP figures, citizens are likely to feel more responsible for making the country self-sufficient, and these slogans might nudge people in that direction. But we should also keep in mind that ultimately there are limits to how far such ideas can be pushed. Simply using catchy slogans cannot lead to any significant change in public policy unless they are complemented by necessary infrastructure development and an economic and social environment in which the desired policy goals can be achieved. That was indeed a very informative answer, sir. After all, it is indeed important for policymakers to be able to efficiently convey their intentions and policy actions to the masses who got them in power. Moving on to the second question, while utility is said to have four types, form, place, time, and possession, this classification clearly ignores happiness. So my question to you is, does behavioral economics explain this otherwise theoretically neglected entity? Well, philosophers and scholars have long thought about happiness. For example, Aristotle viewed the pursuit of happiness as the ultimate objective in life, since all other goals, be they material or spiritual, are a means to this end. This view was echoed uh, also in the thinking of uh, John Stuart Mill, David Hume, and Jeremy Bentham. Among them, Bentham was perhaps best known to push this idea of happiness into the modern age. He argued that happiness should be the guide for how an individual should live his life and also the guide for what governments should do. Now, this school of thought came to be known as classical utilitarianism. Now, with the increasing popularity of behavioral economics, the concept of happiness and well-being are coming to the forefront again. Many of the leading behavioral scientists from Kahneman to Danny Gilbert to Paul Dolan um, have been studying happiness and well-being for many years now. 
Uh, in 2006, Miles Kimball and uh, Robert Willis presented the idea that happiness is the sum of two components. One is elation or short-run happiness, which depends on recent news about lifetime utility. And the second is baseline mood or long-run happiness, which depends on things like health, nutrition, education, etc. Now, from a macro policy perspective also, there is a need of focusing on happiness along with pre-existing metrics such as GDP. In 2010, Stiglitz pointed out that what we measure affects what we do. If we have the wrong metrics, we will strive for the wrong things. So viewed through the lens of behavioral economics, if we are interested in happiness, we should measure and analyze it directly and certainly not presume that GDP is a good measure of it. Thus for many decades now, a number of well-known cross-national surveys ask questions about respondents' happiness and life satisfaction, such as the Eurobarometer and the World Value Survey. And of course, all of us know about Bhutan's cross-national happiness index. But a watershed moment in this happiness and well-being movement happened in 2012, when the UK government, for the first time, released subjective well-being measures of a representative sample of its citizens and in 2014, made it part of its national statistics. And not surprisingly, David Halpern, who leads the Behavioral Insights team, popularly called the Nudge Unit in UK, was instrumental in this effort. As you can see how uh, behavioral economics has made the idea of happiness uh, a central theme in, in today's economics and policymaking. That was quite an insightful answer from your side and especially the examples that you have referred to are quite interesting and informative. Uh, especially the Bhutan one because Bhutan is such a country that considers happiness as an index to uh, calculate its country's welfare. So with that, my next question to you, sir, is there has always been a conflict or debate on rationality and irrationality. And in the middle of this, somewhere lies a term uh, of behavioral economics as heuristics. So what basically uh, this means and does the heuristic approach to decision-making process complement the expectations theory or interferes with it? Uh, so in a seminal paper in 1955, Nobel laureate economist Herbert Simon explained the theory of bounded rationality, where he said that human beings have limited cognitive ability, limited memory, and limited information processing capability. Heuristics are shortcut strategies or mental processes that human beings, with their bounded rationality, apply while making complex decisions. So you can think of heuristics as cognitive shortcuts or rules of thumb that simplify decisions. Many decisions in life can be quite complex, actually, especially if they involve choices about matters in which people have very little experience or expertise. And in such cases, people often use rules of thumb or other mental shortcuts to help them make decisions. Heuristics are usually meant to be helpful, but with no guarantees. As discussed by Kahneman and Tversky, heuristics can often lead to biases. Now, coming to expectations theory, one prominent application of it is to predict short-term interest rates based on current long-term interest rates. It is done by relying on a particular piece of information, the long-term interest rate in this case, and making decisions based on it. This is what is also described as the anchoring heuristic, which is the tendency to rely heavily 
on one prior piece of information when making a decision. In this case, people tend to attach too much weight to the anchor at hand, the long-term interest rate, and predict the short-term interest rate based on the anchor. Now, it is common knowledge that people's past experience dictate the decision they make in the future. Especially when it comes to financial matters, studies have shown that investors heavily rely on their past experiences to make decisions about their future investments. Their expectations are formed based on the mental model that past is a good predictor of future. Studies have also shown that anchoring heuristic impacts investors' forecasts on the changes in stock prices. Now, another heuristic that determines investors' stock market expectations is the optimism and overconfidence heuristic, which is the tendency of people to be unrealistically optimistic and overconfident about their beliefs and decisions. Studies have found that positive experiences in the past reinforces investors' overconfidence, inflating their expectation about the future and making them believe that they are in complete control of their financial portfolio. That was indeed an insightful take on this, sir. In fact, at the end of the day, as situations and contexts change, so do our approaches to day-to-day activities. Which brings us to our fourth and final question for the day. Given the electoral space in India, and especially in times of crisis, such as the current one, what roles do you think nudges play in deciding the election outcomes? Um, So that's an interesting question. Um, Now, the role nudges can play in deciding election outcomes are from two channels. First is by increasing voter turnout. And the second is conditional on voting, influencing who does one vote for. Now, the average voter turnout in the in the last 2019 general elections in India was about 67 percent. And further for states such as Bihar and Maharashtra, the turnout ranges between about 57 to 61 percent only. The Election Commission of India has taken several steps to increase voter turnout over the years, um, like the creation of strategic voter education and electoral participation program in 2008. But among the overall poor voter turnout, the problem of youth voter turnout is particularly prominent. So in 2019, a group of researchers conducted a registration plan experiment in the colleges of Mumbai to increase youth voter registration prior to the assembly elections. And they found that the number of registrations in the colleges that received the registration plan intervention were 33% more than those that did not. But not just in India, behavioral economics has been used around the world to nudge voter turnout. Before the 2015 UK elections, for example, a study found that negative monetary incentives, that is possibility of a fine, significantly increased student registration as opposed to positive monetary incentives, that is, chances of winning a lottery. This finding also highlights the loss aversion idea pioneered by Kahneman and Tversky, that losses loom larger than gains in people's minds. Now, apart from registrations, behavioral economics tools and interventions can also impact whom one votes for. If all voters are fully rational, then they will have well-defined policy preferences and will select candidates who is most closely aligned to their preferences. They will also have perfect information and will be able to identify any attempts of being nudged. But as we all know, that's not how the world works. Voters are constantly influenced in the name of caste, religion, race, nationality, and every possible intersection of identity. 
viral news clipping, trending tweets, and WhatsApp forwards leaves an impression on voters, whether or not they realize it consciously. For example, the way a news report is being presented impacts or reinforces one's belief about a candidate or a party. Moreover, by analyzing user data, platforms such as Facebook and Google have been repeatedly displaying content in line with users' political leaning and preferences. Uh, the most well-known example uh, in this is, of course, the case of Cambridge Analytica, which used voters' personal information to nudge them into voting for a particular candidate. Now, an interesting aspect of this nudge was that the users that were being targeted were the ones who were termed impressionable based on their data. A study revealed that these nudges in the form of targeted customized updates increased the probability that a non-aligned voter would decide to vote for a particular candidate by at least five percentage points. However, nudges have the potential to influence election outcomes in a more positive way as well. As you had asked about the Indian electoral space, let me end with an Indian example. A few years ago, Abhijit Banerjee and others conducted an RCT in UP where an NGO went to randomly selected villages with the campaign, don't vote on caste, vote on development issues. And in the next election, it was found that in the treatment villages where the NGO campaigned, ethnic voting went down by seven percentage points compared to the control villages where there was no campaign. So these examples show that nudges can influence election outcomes to a certain extent, but how they are used crucially determines whether they improve the overall welfare of the society. That was indeed a great explanation, sir. After all, by the virtue of its population size, India continues to be the largest democracy. And therefore, every single thing becomes a very important factor in deciding the final outcomes as to who gets elected and who doesn't. Sir, uh, yep. would you like to pass on one message to the audience, particularly undergraduate students, about the scope of behavioral economics in India and how they can pursue this as uh, a career? Sure. So, um, unfortunately, in most of undergraduate colleges in India, behavioral economics is still not part of uh, their syllabus. Um, but, um, you know, as you, as we all know, in the last few years, there has been a lot of interest in, in behavioral economics. Students uh, from all around the country are, are very excited about it uh, and wants to know more about it. So I would suggest um, that, um, you know, what, what you can do if, um, is to read some basic uh, introductory books to behavioral economics, like uh, the book called Nudge by Richard Taylor and Cass Sunstein or Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Um, also, you know, some, uh, what some colleges have done is, you know, they have created these book clubs where they read this book, discuss this. Um, so things like that could be uh, useful. Um, and also uh, try and find every opportunity to, um, to know more about behavioral economics um, and, uh, and learn about it because it's very, very relevant um, in the real world, in policymaking, in business, uh, in academia. And so if you, if you know behavioral economics, your horizon for understanding economics in, and the world in general, I think would be um, um, you know, much broader and, and it'll open up. So, so that, that would be my message to um, you know, all undergrad students that you know, read about behavioral economics and uh, because it's cool, it's fun, it's interesting, and it'll open a whole new dimension to the economics that you have been learning so far. 
Well then, this brings us to the end of this amazing session with Dr. Shagata, and we hope that our audience finds this episode a gold mine of information, just as we do. Thank you <laughs> once again, sir. This was Himanshi and Mayul in conversation with Dr. Shagata, and we look forward to bringing more insightful episodes for you. Thank you.